We're uh, shifting into a, a new place as we come to uh, come to our study of the Bible. Uh, our, our, I think our world, uh, people, we have a fascination with uh, that which is unknown. We have a fascination with the future. That's why people will uh, spend money to ask uh, these strange people to read their palm lines. They'll go to fortune tellers. They'll go to psychics in order to try and figure out uh, what lies in the future uh, for them. They'll pay lots of money, and that's why I think there's a fascination with, um, you know, we ask some people in the church, what is one book of the Bible that you would like to study, that you would like to hear preached about? Uh, many people will say, I want to hear about Revelation, because they want to know how everything ends. They want to see how the future is going to unfold. There's a fascination that we have with the future and about Judgment Day and all of these things, the end of the world. And so there's uh, just a, been an explosion of movies about the end times and about how things are going to end. There's a certain sense in which we understand that the present is the present, the future is the future. And there's a veil that separates the present from the future. And there's a sense in which the prophets take us beyond the veil to see that which we can't see with our eyes. There's a, there's a sense in which prophets take us to see what normal people cannot see. And so there's this rise of a desire to find out about prophecy and what do Jesus' prophecies mean and when is Jesus coming back and when is the end of the world going to happen and all of these things. It's something that's on the hearts and on the minds of many people, not only inside the church, but outside the church as well. There's this desire to find out what is the future hold for me, for the world, for our people, for my family. What is it going to look like when we get to that place? I think for as much as we're interested in the future and revelation and things like that, we don't get that excited, though, about reading the Old Testament prophets, <laughs> like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, Joel. Maybe Jonah's kind of cool, but the rest of the one we don't get that excited about. When's the last time a children's ministry has heard a sermon about Obadiah or Micah or Nahum? Or the last time you were so excited to read about the book of Amos or Haggai? Probably not often. Why is that? I think for a lot of reasons, there's a lot of reasons why. For one, we think, well, that's not... Uh, prophecy for the future. That's something that's already come to pass. Therefore, it's history. It's kind of boring. I don't understand it. That's another thing is we don't feel like we understand the books of the prophets. It's confusing. They're like these angry old men who are yelling and screaming. And then what does that have to do with my life? And so for the great majority of believers, we avoid the books of the prophets. But today, as we begin a look into the prophets, we're going to ride the prophets out until we get to Christmas Day. Hopefully, my aim is that the prophets will come alive in a new way, that we'll understand its meaning, we'll understand its import, to understand why it is so powerful and what it te ultimately what it teaches us about Jesus. We're going to begin with Isaiah today. Uh, but before we get to Isaiah, I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the nature of prophets in general before we look into Isaiah specifically. So prophets are basically spokespeople for God. The word prophet literally means uh, something bubbling up inside. So it's not something that prophets are just getting, you know, they're, they're sitting somewhere and their hand starts moving and they just start writing and this is the book of Isaiah. It wasn't like that. It was something where God spoke into their hearts and there was a fire within their bellies. You hear sometimes the African-American preachers, they say, there's a fire in my belly and I can't help but to preach this. And that's what the prophets were. There was a word given from God to them and it burned within them. It bubbled up within them so that they couldn't help but to preach because a lot of times their messages got them in trouble and put them in hard places. But prophets were people who spoke the word of God. They spoke not only about what will be in the future, but about what currently is. They were not only foretellers, but they were foretellers. They said this is the way things will be in the future, but they also said this is what things are like in the present in a way that people may not necessarily have seen. This is what the prophets did. There are about 14 prophets that spoke, in the, that spoke and wrote in the Old Testament. Some of them are called major prophets, five books called the major prophets. And there were others who were called minor prophets simply because their messages were shorter. But what is it that helps us to understand? I think we have to understand historically the context. So you remember this. We began this series many moons ago. This is the 39th uh, session that we're in this all about jesus deal we started with creation we got to noah we got to all of that the restarting of things and then we got to abraham okay, abraham lived around 2000 bc very good charlie charlie's good man of sorrows okay 2000 bc okay 2000 bc abraham 
lived. Okay, out of Abraham would come Isaac and Jacob. We followed this, tracked along 12 children born to, to, uh, to Jacob, including Joseph, and that would lead us into Egypt. Okay? They were enslaved in Egypt, the people of God. They would become a nation under the leadership of Moses who lived around Charlie. That's right. 1500 BC. Okay, Moses lived around then. He constituted them as a nation by virtue of the Ten Commandments. They became a people of God wandering through the wilderness. And they said, hey, you know what? We don't want judges. We need a king. And so the first king of Israel was a man named Saul. Second king of Israel, the greatest king that Israel had was a man named David. And he lived around 1000 BC. Good. Thank you, Charlie. 1000 BC he lived. This was the glory days of Israel. Glory days of Israel. His son would be a man named Solomon. He would be the third king of Israel. And from there, Solomon was a bad. He, he was led astray. And so from there, the kingdom was divided into two. Into two, rather, like this. The northern kingdom, ten tribes. Okay, this northern kingdom was called Israel. And the southern kingdom, the two tribes. The littler kingdom was called Judah. Okay, so Israel in the north, 10, king, uh, 10 tribes. Judah in the south, two tribes. Israel, Judah, Israel, Judah. For 250 years, Israel was in existence, and they had 19 or 14 kings, 14 kings, and they were all evil. And they led the people of God astray. And so in about 700 BC, Israel was smashed, and they were taken away by the Assyrian Empire, whose capital was Nineveh, so wicked that Jonah didn't want to go there. Okay, so the northern kingdom Israel smashed by Assyria about 700, 722, 700 uh, B.C. The southern kingdom remained Judah. They had about 20 kings and they were kind of iffy. 20 kings in all over 400 years. Eight of them were good kings, righteous kings. Twelve of them were bad kings. So they would rise, they would fall, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, until Babylon came 586 and they they wrecked them and they took these Israelites into these these uh, people of God into the land of Babylon in the exile the darkest point in the history of Israel's grand uh, narrative okay so you've got two kingdoms Israel and Judah you've got many different prophets who are speaking at different points in time so to understand the prophets you under you have to understand were they writing to Israel or they were they writing to Judah were they writing before the exile? Were they writing during the exile? Or were they writing after the exile? All of these pieces are important. And once you understand them, it'll be, you'll be able to make sense of the prophets. So we'll go and, and talk more about that. And maybe we'll have a Bible study. I wish we had many, 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 many weeks to talk about Isaiah. But just we're going to spend a week just hit on the main things in Isaiah. Isaiah was writing around uh, 700, 680s before Christ writing in that time when Assyria was just about to, be, uh, to take over uh, the Jewish nation, the Israelites, the northern kingdom. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through, uh, we'll read verses 1 through 20, and then we're going to look at a couple other places in Isaiah as we look at the message of this prophet. Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. Okay, so he's writing. Writing to the southern kingdom, of Judah, warning them that what happened to the northern kingdom will soon happen to them if they don't change. This is God's word. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They've forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. 
The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. No pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who's asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they should be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's word. So Isaiah speaking, meaning the Lord is salvation, um, but doesn't really sound like he's very kind here. What is, what is the message of Isaiah? There's a, a lot of them, but I want to pull out three that, um, in my understanding, is, is, are three of the main things about Isaiah. The first thing is this, that the threat of judgment should lead us to repentance. The threat of judgment should lead us to repentance. If you read especially the first 40 chapters, 39 chapters of Isaiah, it seems like God is the typical God that people outside of the church talk about. You know, the reason I don't follow God is because God in the Old Testament is angry. He's vengeful. He's a God of wrath. He wants to kill everybody. I don't want to follow that God. The God of the New Testament, maybe, is a God of mercy, of love, of grace. I want to follow that God. The reason people say that is because at a deep level, Isaiah shows that God is a God of justice, and we have inherently our own understanding of what justice is. It means we want to see things that are right. That's why we say things like, this is not fair. Because in our minds, we have an idea of what fairness is, about what justice is, about what judgment ought to and ought to not look like. I think we want justice in times when we have been wronged. It isn't that the case. When I, when I was in college and a group of people in this art exam, that I, in this class I was taking, a bunch of people cheated on this exam and they got A's in the class because of that and the rest of us got B pluses. I wanted justice. That was wrong. I said, that's not right. The teacher needs to do, any, do something to punish these people who didn't do what is right. Justice must be served. When I'm wronged, when you're wronged, we want justice. But when we're on the other side of the equation, a lot of us don't really want justice. When we are the ones doing the wrong. There was, when I was in college, again, I was, uh, my last year in college, I'd, I'd finished uh, school that I was doing ministry there. I had a group of students. This is the year of Pastor Goose. And so his small group, there were three people in that, in, in that small group that I was leading that got brought up on honor charges because they were accused of cheating on an exam. And so there was an honor code, and, and, and basically it's just a one-and-done thing. You put, and every test you take, every paper you write, you say, on oh, my honor as a university student, I pledge that I have neither given nor received aid on this exam. And these people signed that, but the three of them uh, cheated on a take-home exam, and so they're brought before the student court, and I had to give a testimony on their behalf. And I promise you that I wasn't pleading for justice. You're right. They did wrong. Kick them out. I didn't say that. I wanted mercy, not justice. You see, we have our own ideas of justice that when we're on the wrong side that's been wronged, we want justice. But when we're on the side that has done wrong, we don't want justice. But in order for justice to work, it has to go both ways. If I want justice for me, then I need to have justice for everybody else. If I want justice when I'm wronged, I need to have, it has to be justice when I am wrong also, or else that's not an equitable society. You can't have a culture, you can't have a kingdom, you can't have a reign of justice if it doesn't go both ways. And so what God is saying, what God is saying in the book of Isaiah is that justice and judgment are coming 
to you because of your failure to obey the things that God has said to you. So the threat of judgment, the threat of judgment ought to lead us then, if you know that judgment is coming, to go to the one you have wronged and to say, please forgive me. I own up to my mistake. A couple years ago, I think it was after um, our brother Greg Benj and and Lynette uh, Thomas had been baptized, confirmed. We went to celebrate at at Wings of Winter Garden. We're eating this meal. And uh, Greg and Kathy, two of our house churches were there. And Greg and Kathy's kids, uh, daughters Mia and Nina, were running around, and they did something that caused their mother Kathy to get upset. And so she said, who wants memme? Which means, who wants to get spanked? Now, I, was, I thought about that question a lot, and, and I talk about that with Olive sometimes. I say, when she asked that question, do you think Mia and Nina ran, looked at each other and said, do you want it? Yeah, I want it. You want it too? Yeah, let's run. Let's, and they lined up to get spanked. I don't think that's why she asked that question. Who wants it? Me, me, I want to be spanked. No. The reason she threatens them is not so that she could actually follow through with a judgment, but so that they might come to repentance. To say, I'm sorry, I've done wrong. I won't do it again. I turn away from those things in order that I might follow you. And if they don't, then the judgment has to follow through. In order that they learn. God is saying, I value my relationship with you so much that if something is blocking the love that I have for you, then I need to call that out and say judgment is coming in order that you might repent. Because this relationship is so important that I don't want sin blocking the way between my heart and yours. The threat of judgment ought to lead us to repentance. And so God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, as he talks to the southern kingdom, okay, this is a hundred years before, a hundred plus years before they were to be ransacked by Babylon and taken into exile. He's saying, listen, look at the northern kingdom, Israel. They're hanging by a thread. They're about to be taken down by Assyria. Jerusalem is about to fall. Look at them and understand that the same judgment that came to them is going to come to you. But if you repent then God will relent. But if you don't, then the same judgment that's coming that came to them is going to come to you. When you hear, when you see other people being judged, other people facing the consequences for their sin, and you feel in your heart a conviction that God is speaking to you, saying, you need to turn back to me, how do you respond? Because the threat of judgment is not a blind threat if you understand that God is a God of justice and justice has to be carried out in order for God to be just, in order for God to be a loving and holy God. How do you respond when you feel the conviction in your heart that God is saying you need to turn away from that sin? I uh, saw this article that uh, one of my buddies in New Jersey posted about uh, from, from Tim Keller. He says the one reason, the one reason why revival is being hindered in our generation. He said the one thing is because most people outside the church are sleeping with each other. And a lot of people within the church are sleeping together also. He's saying what happens when you see that, when you hear that, will you repent? Because unless there is repentance, there will not be revival. When God threatens judgment, he's saying the reason I do that is so that we will repent and turn back to him. What do you do when you feel the call of God in your heart? Do you run from God? Do you ignore God? Or do you move to him in repentance? What was it that God was bringing against them? Three things. Verse 11, he says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I I have more than enough. He's saying you're just going through the religious motions. You're doing the right things, but your heart is not in them. And you see that throughout Isaiah, Isaiah 58. You you see this throughout the book. What does it mean? And we do this a lot today, don't we? We come into our worship services and we do the religious thing. We do the thing that looks right to people. But God says all along, I wanted your heart. Friday morning, uh, my family was eating breakfast and we had one of uh, the kids' aunties over and she was eating with us. And as I was praying for the meal, I heard Elijah talking during the prayer. He doesn't, I mean, a lot of times he does that. But what he said was he was talking to this auntie who will remain unnamed. And he said, don't wink, pray. So when we finished praying, we found out what happened doing some investigative journalism. And we found out that this auntie was looking at Elijah while we were praying 
And instead of praying, she was winking at him. And Elijah, God, through Elijah, spoke to this auntie saying, don't wink, pray. Don't just go through the motions. Pray. Pray, really pray. That's what he was saying. But Israel was just going through the motions. The second thing that they were doing in verse 17 says, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. They were perpetrating injustice. They were not fighting for justice. They saw injustice all around and they turned a blind eye to it. And God is saying, don't do that. Fight for justice. Plead the cause of those who are oppressed and don't have a voice. And then he says in verse 20, uh, 21, see how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Right? He's saying they have become idolaters. Used to be faithful, but now they've prostituted themselves out to other idols. Money, pleasure, education, success, reputation, whatever these idols might be, they don't sit on shelves anymore. They hang out in our hearts. The idols of our heart. What is on the throne of our heart? It's threefold case that God brings against the people. And he goes so far to say, you know what? You guys are just like Sodom and Gomorrah. But if you repent, then I will relent. The threat of justice, the threat of judgment should lead us to repentance. This is a hard message that Isaiah is preaching to the southern kingdom of Babylon, saying, look at your northern neighbors, your brothers and sisters. Judgment is coming, but you can repent and God will spare you. That's the first thing we see. Second thing that we see, that even in the darkest times, a remnant remains. Even in the darkest of nights, even in the hardest of times, God says a remnant is going to remain. He uses this language throughout the book of Isaiah, from chapter, starting from chapter 7 until chapter 39, it talks about how the prophecy of 1 through 6, when he shocked and awe brought these things and said what was going to happen, starting in chapter 7 to chapter 39, it actually does happen. The northern kingdom falls to Assyria. They get demolished. They get smashed because they didn't trust in God. In the midst of that, they didn't turn back to God. And so he's warning them, but yet in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that darkness, he's saying there's a remnant that's going to remain. When everyone else goes astray, when everyone else remains unfaithful to God, he's saying there will be a faithful remnant, and out of that remnant will come the Savior to Israel, the Savior of the world. When... The rest of the world no longer follows Jesus. Is our faith strong enough to continue to follow when nobody else does? For the last few months, man, this is the question that's been haunting me as I think about my life, I think about my family, as I think about our church, as I think about the church throughout the world in this day and age, in the year 2014, I wonder, is our faith strong enough to continue to trust Jesus when everyone else stops walking with him? I, I, uh, I don't know where I, I, I saw this, but I remember one time our senior pastor saying that in the year 1999, when he first came, there were 46 families in our church he said of them, only 20% of them, their children, continue to go to church. And he was lamenting over that. And even in the darkest of times, the promise of God is that there will be a remnant that he sets apart that will remain faithful, that will remain true. These days are... Um, the last couple days have been a little bit more challenging, but these days have been really exciting for me and for... Uh, for a, a few people who are fans of the Baltimore Orioles because we made it through a long 162-game season. We made it out of the first round of the playoffs, and now we're 
four wins away from making it to the World Series. This is exciting. Amen? <laughs> Just kidding. It's exciting for me because when I was a child, baseball was my first love and the Orioles were my first team because growing up in D.C., Baltimore was the closest thing I had to a hometown team. And so I remember I would uh, wake up early in the morning to run out to get the newspaper and to read if the Orioles had won. And I would stay up late. Once I, I realized that the Orioles games were on the radio, I would eat my dinner really quickly and I would listen with my Sony Walkman to 1500 AM WTOP in Washington, D.C. And I would listen 162 games, inning after inning. I would listen to these Orioles. Games. They were my first love. I loved the Orioles and they loved me too. The reason I know is because I would send baseball cards to Memorial Stadium, my favorite players, and I would please, please, please autograph these and send them back to me. The delight on the face of a 10-year-old boy when Cal Ripken Jr. sent an autographed picture of himself, and I hung it up, and I made scrapbooks with these Orioles players. They were my first love. I remember 1982 when I was six years old, Cal Ripken Jr., rookie of the year, 1983, beating the Philadelphia Phillies World Series champions. It was a glorious day. What a glorious way. Oh, that he had saved Baltimore in the city. It was amazing. It was beautiful. I remember the years that we made the playoffs, just missing the next round of the playoffs, 96, 97, all of these great years of bliss and of joy. And so this year means a lot. But I also, I also remember, I also remember the 14 straight, years of losing seasons that ended just a few years ago. And I remember in about 2005 when a new baseball team came into the D.C. metro area, moved into RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C., and the former Montreal Expos became the Washington Nationals. And I remember all of my friends who used to cheer for the Orioles shifting their allegiance to the Nationals in the midst of our 14-year losing streak. And I remember saying, why are you doing this? What are you doing? You've forsaken your first love. You know what I call people like that? I call them idolaters. I said, why? Why would you do that? And so because of a long history of my love affair with the Orioles, I remained faithful and I remained true, even though people said, why do you still cheer for the Orioles? They're never going to be good. They're never going to get anyone to come to their, to their team. Because 14 years of losing, playing in the most difficult division in baseball, nobody wants to come and play in Baltimore. And yet now, in the year 2014, our faithfulness is finally being vindicated with the fruit of a playoff run. And it's beautiful. I am a remnant of Baltimore fans, long-suffering fans of long ago, who remain faithful even when others left the fold. And God is saying, there will always be a remnant amongst the people of God. There will always be a remnant amongst the people of God when all else fades, when everyone else turns away. You see, a remnant wasn't just a faithful people. It was, it was the leftover when the mass of others left town. It was a remnant when everybody else started following other gods. A remnant is what happens when you're wrapping a present and you cut the wrapping paper and there's just scraps left. A remnant is what happens when you go to eat dinner at a restaurant and you take all of the good stuff and you leave the vegetables on the plate. A remnant is those vegetables that you, what do you do with those things? After you've taken the majority of what you want to take, what do you do with those things? They're good for nothing. The only thing they're good for is to be thrown away. But the beauty, and this is what we see in garage sales, all the, the, the success of garage sales is that one person's trash becomes another person's treasure. See, people looked at the remnant of it, and you could see chapter 6, verse 13, chapter 7, verse 3, chapter 10, 21 and 22, chapter 11, verse 11, 11, 16, 17, 3, 17, 31, 32, 28, 5, 37, 4, 46, 3. All these verses talk about a remnant. 
that when the tree gets cut down, there's a stump that remains. And out of that stump is going to come the Savior of the world. All of these things, it talks about a remnant that the world looks at. And they look at the remnant and say, they're good for nothing. And they ask, why do you still follow God? Have you heard that before? Have you experienced that before? People say, yeah, you know what? To follow Jesus, that's old-fashioned. People did that in the 80s, in the 90s, in the early 2000s. But no one does that anymore. And they make fun of you. And they say, poor you for thinking the things that you think. For seeing things that other people don't see. For hearing things that other people don't hear. For believing in a God that is unbelievable to believe in. And they make fun of you. And they say, oh, you're so poor. The wretched ones. Les Miserables. The wretched ones. But the wretched ones in the eyes of the world are the righteous ones. The remnant in the eyes of God. That the trash in the eyes of the world become the treasure in the eyes of God. Because God has always used a simple remnant of people. Has always left a remnant. In the days of Noah, people made fun of him. There's no, there's no rain. It hasn't rained in years. What are you talking about? Why are you building this ark? And, and everyone made fun of him. But he was the remnant and God saved him. And he saved those that belonged to him. There's always been a remnant. In the days of, Isaiah, days of Elijah, when everyone else bowed to Baal, he said, Elijah said, I'm the only one left. And God said, no, I've reserved 7,000 who have yet to bow the knee. There's a remnant that through them, the world is going to be changed. There's always, in the darkest of nights, there's always a faithful remnant. There's always a remnant. And the call of God and the challenge of God is that when everyone else leaves, that you would remain true to the God who will remain faithful to you. That when everyone else says you're in college now, you don't have to believe that stuff. That you would remember what you've believed. You would remember who has captured your heart. That you would remember what you gave your life to. That you would remain when all else fades. When 11 disciples, 10 disciples left Jesus hanging at the cross. There was John. There was John. The righteous remnant who remained at the cross watching his beloved die. A crucified, mangled carpenter seeing him die. And yet being the remnant, God gave him the revelation of the end time so that he could record that for us so that we could know that we have hope for the future. There's always going to be a remnant. There's always going to be a remnant of people that God says have not bowed their knees to the idol but will remain true. When everyone else leaves, though none go with you, Will you still follow Christ? Will you still follow him? And the plea of God through Isaiah is that you would remain faithful, that you would remain true, that you would know who it is that you have believed and that you would follow him to the end. The second thing that we see. The last thing, the last thing we see is that salvation and hope come in unlikely ways. Come in unlikely ways through unlikely means. So starting in chapter 40 of Isaiah, the narrative shifts away from, away from the northern kingdom and its, its downfall. And it talks about what's going to happen to Babylon, uh, I'm sorry, through Babylon to the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah says that judgment is going to come. The people of God are going to be taken away from their home. Imagine if some people came, uh, took us away from Orlando, took us away from our home, and they took us into a foreign land with other gods, took us into some place in the Middle East where we had to worship other gods. Everything we owned, everything that we possessed, everything that we knew, everything that we loved, our church, all that was destroyed, and we were taken to a foreign land. This is what the exile was, forced to worship other gods, forced to change our name to the, God, to the names of other ethnicities and other religions. This is what would happen eventually to the southern kingdom of Judah. But even in the midst of that, from 40 to 66, Isaiah prophesies hope as well. That hope is coming. That salvation is going to come as well. There is going to be a great day of salvation that's going to come. Those of you who've taken Harvest to a One, you know that salvation entails two things. One, there's a great danger. And two, there's outside help. This is the language of salvation. This week... I needed salvation. I always need salvation, but in one particular way. There was a great danger in my life. My computer, which has everything that is dear to me outside of my, uh, out of people that I care about, everything was on that computer. And my computer broke. 
and stopped working. And so Monday morning, I was sitting there looking at my computer, wondering what to do, uh, trying to figure out what I should do. And I sat there with my hands on my forehead like this, contemplating as I stared at my computer. And then my two old kids, Manny and Elijah, came and they wanted to play. And so they started like climbing on me and poking me and stuff. And they said, let's play. And I said, guys, wait, 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 wait. Um, I was really kind of like, a, I, was, I was a little bit flustered. I said, Daddy's trying to think what I need to do with my computer. And so immediately, their gears started shifting, started moving. And Manny, she, they started giving advice, but Manny gave the best advice. She said, Daddy, just take it to the Apple store. It's a great idea. And not wanting to be outdone, Elijah, and this is, this is beautiful. Elijah said, Daddy... Maybe I can fix your computer. <laughs> and Manny thought, well, if my first idea doesn't work, let me give another one. She said, I can take it to school. We have tools there. And then Elijah said, maybe I can take it to my class. So Manny and Olive were like, you don't even go to school. What are you talking about? Where are you going to take it? So I thought, what would you think if Elijah picked up my computer, walked to his room, came back, brought it back, and said, here, try. And I turned it on, and it worked. Oh, it didn't happen. Right? Some of you are like, what? I got a broken computer, too. No, it didn't work. But what if that happened? How unlikely would that be? Okay, it's just as unlikely as the means that God used to bring salvation to an enslaved and exiled group of people who are the object of his unending love. Who would you expect? Think about it. Who would you, your history is marked by slavery. First in Egypt, the superpower of the world, enslaved to Egypt. God raised up a bumbling, stuttering, 80-year-old shepherd to lead the people out. But soon after, just a few centuries later, the Assyrian Empire comes and they dash Israel to peace. All that's left, two little tribes, Judah, Benjamin, that's it. That's all that's left. Assyria gets taken down by the strong and mighty Babylonian Empire. And Babylon takes the people of God and they exile them out to a foreign land of Babylon where Daniel takes place. Exiles them out there. After Babylon, they get defeated by the Persian Empire. And so once again, Israel, the people of God, Judah, enslaved to Persia. Artaxerxes, these great people. You see these, these people. I think the Persians are the ones you see in the movie 300, right? These, these mighty Persian Empire. And then after that, it's the Greeks. And then come to the first century AD, it's the Roman Empire, the mighty Roman Empire. And the people of God don't stand a chance. But God is saying, Hope is going to come. Salvation is going to come. A deliverer is going to come. Who do you think is going to do that? In order for a nation to rise, you need a mighty king. You need a powerful king. You need a destructive king, a conquistador who's going to rule with justice and, and a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He's going to kick butt and he's going to take names and he's going to deliver the people of God. He's going to do that. God is saying a Savior is going to come. Just wait. Just wait. Just wait. But what would the Savior look like? I'm going to read from Isaiah. 700 years before, chapter 53. Just listen, if you would, to the kind of Savior that God was going to send. He grew up before him like a tender shoot like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Here is your king. Not a mighty conquering king but a silenced, suffering servant, a mangled Messiah who hung a crucified carpenter on a cross. And he's saying, this is your king. This is your hope. This is your salvation. A most unlikely way to bring hope to the world, isn't it? What kind of a king? What good is a king who dies? What good is a king who dies on a cross? How is that kind of a king, a dead king, going to save anybody? What good is a king who hangs naked on a cross and is placed in a tomb? What kind of a king would save the world like that? But this is our king. Right? This is our God. Only our God works this way. Only our God works this way because he didn't remain in the tomb. And he didn't stay there. He broke through like a banshee and got to the other side and is now seated on the right hand of God. And he brings a message of hope. This is 700 years before. Imagine if in the year 1300, someone prophesied about you, where you'd be born, where you'd live, the kind of people you'd grow up to be, the kind of things that you would do. That's what the prophet Isaiah was. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, I'm sorry, in verse 18, in verse 17, it says, the scroll of of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. This is Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him. And he began by saying, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about. I'm the one that 700 years earlier he was talking about. I'm not some accident. I'm not some guy that just rose up, some charismatic leader who did miracles and gave people bread and, and raised the dead and put people whose ears fell off back on. That's the, the, I'm the one who was to come. Jesus, Messiah, the Lamb of God. And he would come to bring salvation because you see, on the same day of the Lord, that is judgment, for those who don't believe, it's salvation and rejoicing for those who do believe. Because the same cross divides. Either the sinner will pay for the judgment or the Savior will pay for the judgment. It's your choice because the offer is given to all. It says, will you put your trust in him or will you put your trust in yourself to stand before Almighty God in judgment? This is what Jesus says. How? How is this possible? 
Let me just, let me just reread Luke chapter 4, Isaiah 61 to you. The reason why he could preach good news to the poor is because Jesus became poor and suffered the bad news so that we could have the good news. The reason why he could proclaim freedom for the prisoners is because he became a prisoner to sin for you and for me. The reason he could bring recovery of sight to the blind is because he took the illness upon himself to release the oppressed because he suffered under the weight of divine wrath and retribution, becoming oppressed for us to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor because he suffered the day of vengeance to crown us with beauty instead of ashes because he took the crown of thorns upon himself. The question is not what kind of a king would suffer for us to save us. The question is, how could any other kind of a king save the world except through his suffering on our behalf? Jesus did it. He did it, and this was prophesied through the prophet seven centuries before he came. And he did this so that we might have peace, so that judgment would be averted, so that we would repent and turn to him, that we might stand as a righteous remnant in the midst of a world that deeply needs, that desperately needs to see the hope of Christ in order that we might stand and we might be faithful to him. Let's pray together. Yeah, just take a moment to, to pray. Response. I don't know how you might need to respond today. Maybe the warnings of other people in your life have caused you to say, I need to repent. I need to turn away from sin. After a moment of praying, I'm just going to give an invitation. I don't know if there's anyone here that might want to do that today, right? To put their faith in Christ and to say, you know what? Um, I've been coming to church, or maybe this is my first time at church, but I haven't trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior and as my Lord. I see that he came onto the scene 2,000 years ago, but it wasn't an accident. It wasn't some uh, fortuitous turn of events, but this was prophesied by God. Maybe there are people in here who need to put their trust in Jesus Christ today. Maybe others of you, you've been wondering, is it worth it for me to still follow Jesus? And you're struggling with that. And you feel like you're the only one. God's reminding you through the word of God that there will always be a remnant. There will always be more than you know who have not bowed to an idol. Maybe you feel like, man, there are people in my life that need hope and salvation, but... There's no way that he could use me. God uses unlikely people to do his bidding. Unlikely means to bring hope and salvation to those in need. Let's pray together for a couple moments. Let's pray, Lord, help me to appreciate the wonder and the beauty of my Savior who suffered and died for me. Help me to love you and love you in return. Let's pray, and then in a minute, I'm going to just give an invitation for anyone who just wants to, from where you're seated, just raise your hand your trust in Christ. Let's pray together for a few moments and then we'll continue on. Let's pray. Pray quietly. Pray loud if you want. Out loud if you want. Let's pray honestly, earnestly right now. here it's like hey you know what uh, I need Jesus the reality is that all of us will one day stand before a maker and either we will stand and receive the judgment that our sins deserve or we can believe that Jesus Christ took that for us so that all that remains not wrath not anger not judgment but mercy love grace so wherever we are, whoever you are, sixth grade, adult, if you need Jesus in your life, like, I want to put my trust in Christ today to be my Savior, 
well as to be the new master of my life. Right, you're turning away from your old life and turning to Jesus. If that's you in here, I just invite you to raise your hand quietly from where you are. Okay, thank you. See you. Thank you. Thank you. See you back there. There's a couple of folks who are indicating decisions. Okay, see you in the front here. Thanks. sister back there we see you i need jesus in my life i want to give my life to christ he gave himself for me in order that i might have life i'm going to invite all of us to uh, just pray this prayer in your heart together for the sake of those who are confessing this for the first time and maybe you're here and you haven't raised your hand but just, I want to give my life to Christ. I need him in my life. Now let's just pray this prayer. Pray it in your heart quietly, but just honestly. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you that your love was not simple. It wasn't an easy love. But you demonstrated in the fullest way by laying down your life so that I might have life. Thank you for dying in my place so that my sins would be forgiven. I believe you did that not only for the sins of the world, but you did that for me. I confess my need for you. I put my trust in you. Ask that you'd come into my life. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Help me to be who you want me to be. I love you, Jesus, because you first loved me. And so, Father, as we pray this prayer on behalf of all those who have not yet prayed it, we pray that the confession of faith that they make through this prayer would burn within their hearts and would be seeds that go deep into the deepest places of their soul in order that it might give life to fruit that will last, a fruit that is consistent with their confession, a fruit of love for Jesus that rises up, causes them to want to know you and to love you and to walk with you and tell others about the glorious hope that they found in you. May all of us who have prayed this sometime before be reminded of what makes the gospel good news. Make it good again. Make it new to us that we might never grow weary, that we would not let familiarity with the message breed contempt within us, but that we would always hear it afresh and always hear anew the message of the man of sorrows who was made sorrowful in order that we might find joy in you. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. Pray these things in Jesus' name. For anyone.